0: There we are. Recently, we considered the doctrine of regeneration, the idea that God gave us new birth through the Holy Spirit so that we were born again when we came to faith in Jesus Christ. And given that we've been born again, born of the Spirit, becoming by the will of God children of God, It may seem a little odd to read in other places in the New Testament that we've been adopted. For Paul uses a particular phrase, a curious phrase, adoption to sonship, five times in the New Testament, three in the book of Romans, uh, we've just heard from, from Rowan, and once each also in the book of Galatians and Ephesians. Uh, So then, in Galatians, Paul writes, But when the time set had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son, into our hearts, the Spirit who calls our Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. So I guess the question is why might Paul want to use the language of adoption? And what does he mean by that in particular? And that'll be our way in this morning to uh, think about the doctrine of adoption, that area of theology that considers what it means, that we, through faith in Christ, are members of God's family. So let's start thinking, firstly, about adoption. Given that we've been born again, Paul's choice of metaphor, using the word adoption as an analogy for thinking about what God has done for us, that might seem a bit strange. John wants us to think of ourselves as born of God, by the will of God. Paul wants us to think of ourselves as adopted. Why? Why? Well, the answer is almost certainly that in the ancient world, adoption had a very positive, high-status, aristocratic association. The city of Rome herself, by legend, was understood to have been founded by, by twins, Romulus and Ramus, abandoned by their parents, but adopted by a she-wolf and suckled by her. And with respect to Roman aristocracy, as in many ancient cultures, a male heir was needed in order to guarantee succession. Without a male heir, the family, for example, of a Roman senator could lose their estates, their titles, their standing, and all authority if he died suddenly. And given the uncertainties of human fertility, the dangers of childbirth, high neonatal and early childhood death rates, Far better to initially adopt a son early straight away and then to have children naturally afterwards if if you want, but adopt early as an insurance policy and with respect to that male child, it might be the son of a close relative or a child of obvious potential and ability the adopted the adopting family uh, would would pick the one that they want and they would handsomely, and the child would suddenly be the legal heir of a high-status family. It all goes to him. So it was a win-win-win from a Roman perspective. And for this reason, it does not surprise us to find that many Roman emperors were adopted, such as, of course, uh, Caesar Augustus. And although it might not be immediately obvious, adoption has high status in the Old Testament as well. Moses, clearly no ordinary child, was adopted and raised as a son of Pharaoh. Esther, a girl who obviously no one ever forgot meeting, was orphaned and adopted by her uncle. And the nation of Israel was the son of God, as God says through the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. But, as Paul observes in Romans chapter 9, their status as a nation was as the adopted son of God. To be adopted then in the ancient world was a high status thing. Children of promise combined with the best possible upbringing. This is almost certainly what Paul has in mind when he uses the language of adoption to describe what God has done for us. We've been adopted. Good news. So let's consider sonship. Now, at the close of of the 20th century, Bible translation committees all over the world were wrestling with the idea of gender-inclusive language. I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember a world where the word men uh, might mean men, that is, adult males, but it could also mean um, all people, all humanity, men and women, uh, boys and girls combined. I remember that world, but that world's long gone. By the end of the 20th century, that word no longer had that meaning, except that a person was being anachronistic. No, men suddenly meant male adults. Uh, new gender-inclusive language translations, such as the NIV 2011 that, that we use as our pew Bible here at, at St. Barnabas, needed to adjust to these changes in the English language. And to correctly translate, for example, the word brothers, which is frequently found in the New Testament, um, suddenly they realized, well, we need to translate brothers as brothers and sisters, for that is clearly what the author means. We can see that he's addressing men here and women there and children here. It's clearly what he means. So um, we had to suddenly come to grips correctly with gender-inclusive language. But they were a little bit overzealous in places. And a good example of such zeal is the way that, that they translated the phrase sons of God as children of God. Obscuring the fact that the two phrases are not exactly identical in meaning. The Greek word for son is huios, which is a masculine word, and the Greek word for child is technon, a neuter word. Paul uses both phrases, but not quite interchangeably. Um, A literal translation of the, the Romans passage that Rowan read to us this morning would read as follows beginning at verse 14. For those led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery back into fear again, but rather you received a spirit of adopted sonship by which we call out Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then also heirs. Indeed, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, since we suffer together in order that we might also share in the glory. Because those he chose ahead of time, also he decided beforehand, those sharing in the likeness of the image of his Son for the purpose that he might be firstborn, Of many brothers. As we read those passages, we can see that through those various phrases, Paul has several ideas in mind, closely related and overlapping, but lots of different ideas. And to understand the key idea, we need to remember that in the Old Testament, the sons of any man were not only his heirs, but also his legal representatives. If you were the head of a large family and very busy, you could send your eldest son to represent you at, let's say, a town council meeting, and everyone would accept his presence as your presence, his decisions as your decisions. He faithfully represented your interests, your character and your nature. A chip off the old block. As we might say, the son was expected to be just like his father. So these ideas are taken from patriarchy, um, cultures which saw men as being superior to women. The ideas are taken from patriarchy, but the New Testament bends them applying them to both sexes. So then, one of the ideas we find in Romans chapter 8 is the idea of being called in Christ to sonship. Boys and girls, men and women, male and female, in Christ we are all sons of God. Gender-inclusive language, no, but a gender-inclusive idea, plainly yes. If we are led by the Spirit... If we're being led by the Spirit, then we're going to represent our Father faithfully. We are sons of God. If we represent God faithfully, then we'll be just like Jesus, who represented his Father perfectly. Male or female, boy or girl, man or woman, in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, we are conformed to the likeness and the image of Christ, In order, indeed, that Jesus might be the firstborn son of a company of sons, we, being both male and female, are effectively then his brothers. Not gender-inclusive language, but a gender-inclusive idea. Because we all, male and female, boys and girls, men and women, share in that calling to faithfully represent God to the rest of the creation and to each other and to the nations. Well, so then as sons, indeed as children, we are in Christ, heirs together with Christ. Um, Heirs mean we get an inheritance. What is an inheritance? An inheritance is a free gift you get when somebody who loves you dies. Um, And what is our inheritance? Well, it's the same as Christ's, which is everything, but in a way that we can't yet fully fathom or imagine. Imagine. But as sons of God, all of us, men and women, boys and girls, we share in the future kingdom as owners of the kingdom, owners of the kingdom of God. It has been his good pleasure to give it to us, an inheritance prepared for since the begin for us, since the creation of the world, and imperishable, undefiled, unfading, never getting old and tacky inheritance of great worth, as Peter tells us, kept in heaven for us. First Peter, one four. So that's one great thing we we get an inheritance because we're sons of God, and as sons, we also we don't need to fear, because our relationship with God is not master-slave, but each of us, boy or girl, man or woman, male or female, a relationship with God is a father-son relationship. Now, a slave had much to fear. Every single day, a lot to fear. Performance review, harsh punishment, strictness, without any real care as to their welfare. And of course, the very imminent and real day-by-day fear of rejection, the possibility of uh, being thrown out, no permanent place. But a son has no such fears. Um, doesn't matter how badly, is good news to some here this morning, doesn't matter how badly you behave, you're not going to be chucked out. As sons, male and female, we don't need to, 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 to be frightened. Indeed, we have intimacy with our father. Indeed, we dare to call him Abba. Now, this word, Abba, as as I guess many of you already know, this word, Abba, has no uh, direct or easy translation into English, which is one of the reasons why it's left as an Aramaic word in, in our text. It's untranslated. The word might be translated daddy, for it was a childhood word for father, but it isn't childish in the way that daddy can sound a little bit childish to us in English. The word Abba is also a term of endearment, um, like honey or sweetheart or my love. As an endearment, Abba is necessarily intimate. Uh, My friend uh, Steve Conway is known to his congregation as Father Steve. In fact, that's how he answers the phone, Father Steve. But only his two little children get to call him Daddy. Abba, as a word, necessarily connotates a deeply intimate, deeply affectionate, and deeply caring relationship. So that's a further privilege of sonship. Two further privileges are worth noting. They're both in our text. One privilege we share, along with our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the privilege of being called to suffering. That's worth unpacking but another time. It's a call to lovingly persevere with a broken world and broken broken people and broken church and broken bodies. It's a call to persevere, suffering redemptively for a broken world. Paul is confident, though, here in Romans, that, verse 18, the sufferings of the present time are not worthy next to the glory about to be revealed in us. For the creation awaits in eager expectation of the revelation of the sons of God. As sons of God, boys and girls, men and women, we have the privilege of being called to suffer with Christ. One last privilege of sonship, also found in our text, a little bit more subtle, explained uh, in detail in other places too, such as Hebrews chapter 12, is the privilege of of being disciplined, the privilege of knowing the discipline of God in this life. It's a real privilege, as we ourselves often notice. God seems to be uh, remarkably lenient, uh, just demonstrate an astonishing degree of leniency with the wicked, with those who ignore God and break his rules. They seem to get away with everything or anything. It's not fair, we shout. "Um, How can they get get away with it? And we don't but God is disciplining us. He's training us through seasons of failure, futility, deprivation, suffering, sickness. Um, As the author of the book of Hebrew notes, this is, perhaps paradoxically, actually a mark of God's great love for us. He takes enormous care over each and every one of us, over our education in his image. So there's at least six ideas from Romans chapter 8 about what it means that believers in Jesus Christ, whether male or female, boy or girl, man and woman, are adopted as sons of God. We are his chosen representatives. We're being conformed into his image and likeness. We live free of fear, in a relationship of deep intimacy, affection and love, sharing in the privilege of suffering for and with our brother Jesus, and we have the strength to endure hardship, perceiving their indiscipline, knowing that God cares for us, that he works all things together for good. Um, There's a lot in that, but we're thinking about adoption. Um, But I fear that even with this explanation, many of us will continue to find the father-son language in the Bible confronting, irrespective of whether we're male or female. Um, In Anglican circles, um, it's not infrequent that you hear God addressed as mother. And I was at a preacher's conference a few weeks back, and I heard the speaker kept on referring to the Holy Spirit as her. And he said, I don't see why we have to have an all-male trinity. Well, such things are profoundly misguided at any number of levels. But the phenomenon continues. Father-son language is easy for us to misunderstand, and it is very unpalatable to many. Why might that be? Well, perhaps one reason is that now for centuries in the Western world, ever since the Industrial Revolution... Fathers have typically worked far from home, come home late in the day, cranky and tired, and child raising has been essentially the mother's job, often almost entirely. But in traditional settings, of course, fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, spend all day together and teaching the children to read and write, and teaching the children how to pray, that is the father's job. And one of the characteristics of fatherhood in the Old Testament is compassion. Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, just to point out the exceedingly obvious, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Compassion, sympathetic, loving, understanding, resulting in action. Protection, provision, presence. The biblical understanding of the father-child relationship as deeply intimate, deeply enabling, deeply affectionate. That biblical understanding of fatherhood is entirely natural, true, and correct. We see it in stats. Wherever in human populations you get large-scale absenteeism by fathers, you also see the multiplication of poverty, sexual brokenness, and imprisonment. Incarceration goes through the roof. Even though it's obvious, nevertheless, culturally, it's a difficult idea for us as Westerners that the father-child relationship should be deeply intimate, deeply enabling, deeply affectionate. That's an alien idea to us culturally to some degree or another because those things seem, from a Western perspective, more motherly. And then, of course, there's sin, and the way it scars and perverts all relationships and all understanding of relationships here on earth, many, like Luke Skywalker and Dr. Sheldon Cooper, have been denied healthy relationships and uh, healthy understandings of fatherhood. Luke was very distressed when he found out who his father was. And his uncle was no good. But, of course, the father-son language in the Bible is analogical. It's an analogy. Not meaning, of course, that God the Father is our Father only in an analogical way. No, just the reverse. The biology of parenthood is the analogy. The truth is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, the Son... Can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. In other words, if we really want to understand what a father child relationship is like, then we must look first to God. That's the father son relationship. On earth we have analogies. And that brings us indeed to another question. The doctrine of adoption says that through faith in Jesus Christ we have been adopted into God's family. And the question is, which family precisely? And what do we mean by God's family? And there are two answers and they are both correct. Firstly, we've been adopted into Abraham's family. We are sons of Abraham, chips off the old block, children of Abraham, when we put our faith in the Lord, in Jesus of Nazareth, the seed of Abraham. Christians think rightly of themselves as adopted Jews. We are Jews by adoption. And We think rightly of Jews who believe in Jesus as real Jews, not as Christians. It is Jewish to believe in Jesus, but Gentiles, by the grace of God, are allowed to believe too. And when they do, they are adopted into the family of Abraham, God's family. Secondly, and ultimately, of course, it is into the Trinity that we have been adopted This will probably be obvious by now. If the eternal Son of God is our brother, if we too are filled with the Holy Spirit, then we've entered into the Trinity. When we begin our prayers with our Father, we're not calling God Father. No, no, we're calling God the Father Father. Because we're inside of God. On that day, Jesus said, on that day you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. These are extraordinary things. And much of Christian discipleship arises from learning to live these truths. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. The doctrine of adoption as an idea also includes thinking about what it means that we are children of God as distinct from sons of God. So, for example, John writes, what great love the Father has (laughs) lavished on us that we should be called children of God. What are the privileges of being a child of God? Jesus said, now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. To be a child of God is to have absolute belonging with respect to God, God's acceptance, God's attention, God's approval all of the time. It is also to have the promise of his presence, the promise of his provision, and the promise of his protection all of the time. Each of those six things has clear and copious scriptural warrant, but I won't delay us here by providing it. Even so, those six things, I think, are worth committing to memory. As a child of God, I always have my father's acceptance. I always have my father's approval. I always have my father's attention. I always have the promise of the Lord's presence, provision, and protection. Well, now we've covered briefly the content of the doctrine of adoption. In terms of the Bible, adoption is a term that one author, Paul, uses occasionally. But in terms of theology... It is our opportunity to bring into one theory, one idea, everything that the Bible teaches us about being adopted, about being sons of God, and about being children of God. That's how theology works. Often just grabs everything in and then sorts it out. In rounding off, let's consider two things that come out of the doctrine of adoption for Christian living. Firstly... The New Testament insists in a wide variety of places that all believers in Jesus Christ are brothers and sisters. Again, the word adoption is never linked to that idea in the Bible. But theologians see a connection, and so when they talk about the doctrine of adoption, that's when they start talking about us being brothers and sisters, and we are. Having been adopted by God as his children, we are each other's brothers and sisters in an an eternal and very profound way. So then, here at St. Barnabas, we're not in the business of pretending to be like a family. No, no, actually, we are family. Biological family is the analogy. The truth is found in Jesus Christ. With Jesus' biological family standing outside of the door, eager to speak with him, Jesus pointed to his disciples and said, Here is my mother and my brother and my sister. Now, at first glance, that might seem like a comfortable doctrine. How nice to be family. Isn't that warm and fuzzy? But actually, it's quite frightening. It means that we must take the quality of the relationships between us with the utmost seriousness. Yes, in the world we can walk away from each other if it all gets too hard, but we can't once we've come to faith in Christ. Ultimately, we're kidding ourselves if we do that. In in Christ, we cannot escape each other. We we, We must learn to live together. As my father used to say, you have to learn to live together. Um, And that means learning to not keep a record of wrongs, to reconcile as well as to forgive, and to give generously to those in need. As Christmas reminds us annually, there's no escaping family. A second thing for us to consider today There are many biblical ways of addressing God in our prayers, but the New Testament teaches us that the normal way to speak to God is as Father. If your normal term of address for God in your prayers is not Father or Abba Father, perhaps you should think about that. Perhaps you should pray about that. Generally speaking, if addressing God as Father is either too hard or for any reason repulsive to you, that would usually be indicative of a significant need for spiritual counseling and for prayer ministry. You may wish to consider that and seek help as the Lord directs. In Christ, we have been born again born of the Spirit. That's regeneration, the doctrine of regeneration. In Christ we are also all adopted, adopted to sonship. Children of a very special promise, combined with the best ever parenting imaginable. May the Lord find us worthy of the calling we have received. Amen.